My name is Norma Farthing, and I'm a member of the teaching team here at Grace. Always thrilled to be the teacher, but especially today that I was chosen to be the uh, person to launch the fall kickoff. And I'm so glad you're here. For many people, the beginning of school marks a new year more vividly than January 1 does. It's a time to regroup, reorganize, restructure, rethink who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. It's a time for New Year's resolutions, if you will. With that in mind, each study for the next four weeks will focus upon an action verb suggesting change, a transformation we hope to experience. This week's verb is imagination. As Robert Kennedy famously said, there are those who look at things the way they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were, and I ask, why not? Time does not allow me to cover this topic adequately today. So these thoughts are somewhat foundational. Hopefully, I can build on them soon in a grace blog. Part two, if you will. So watch for that if you want more practical information about exercising imagination. Meanwhile, the teaching guide this week is especially helpful. The overarching text for this series is 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, which makes it clear that Jesus gives us everything we need to live and serve God. So let's read that, pray together, and get started. Jesus has the power of God his power has given us everything we need to live and to serve God. We have these things because we know him. Jesus called us by his glory and goodness. Through his glory and goodness, he gave us the very great and rich gifts he promised us. With these gifts, you can share in the nature of God. And so the world will not ruin you with its evil desires. Let us pray. God, our Father, we acknowledge you this morning as creator of all that is seen and unseen. We praise you and bless you and lift you up as our sovereign king. We confess that we have not been good stewards of your creation. We have not protected the earth. We have not seen your image in people who don't look like us. We have ignored or minimized our own power to change things. 
forgive us. Enable us to see through your eyes, to hear with your ears, to touch with your hands, to magnify you in all that we do in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. When my daughter was little, my friend Jennifer gave her a set of Spencer Johnson's Value Tales for Children. Each book tells the story of a significant historical person, complete with delightful illustrations and imaginary friends, while teaching an important character lesson. Rebecca loved them, as did every other kid in our family including her own two sons, Landon and Light. Whatever else Storytime included, there were always value books. One of their favorites was The Value of Imagination, the story of Charles Dickens. Early in the story, young Charles points out a magnificent mansion to his father, announcing that he will live there someday and describing how exactly how grand it will be when he does live there. Laughing, Mr. Dickens notes that Charles has a great imagination. Imagination? What does that mean? asked Charles. Well, said Mr. Dickens, it means being able to take something real, like that house, and to use it to make pictures in your mind of something that isn't real yet, like the way you think it will be when you live in that house. I see, said Charles. It is fun to use imagination. Of course it is, said his father. And they walked home. It is fun to use imagination, but it is so much more than that. Imagination is one of those great and rich gifts God has given us just because he wants us to know him. Incredibly, God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He does so in multiple ways. In the natural world, in people, in the creative genius of art and music and literature. The list is endless. We can look all around us and see God. Doing so is both an exercise in imagination and an act of faith, for the two often look remarkably alike. The Bible teaches that faith gives substance to things we hope for and makes evidence to things not yet seen. In other words, faith makes the abstract concrete so that we can be unshakably convinced that what we believe is real. Imagination does that too. In fact, some writers insist that faith itself is an act of the imagination. No one has ever seen God, 
with physical eyes. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. That he is God in a body. He can be perceived with the senses. I'm going to have to back up, forgive me. This, this is critical to what I'm saying. Imagination is the ability to create and perceive images. All images appeal to our senses. Sight, sound, smell, taste, hearing. And the kinesthetic sense of movement. Images create a sensory experience that makes the unreal real. Now, think of the famous shower scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. See why I wanted to go back to this? I want to disturb your day. <laughs> think of that scene. Y'all, that thing is so realistic that people who see it quit taking showers. Yet that scene is nothing but a brilliant collection of images. Go back and watch it sometime. By engaging our senses, Hitchcock draws us into the scene and creates for us an experience so real that we believe it really happened. Now, let's talk about God. No one has ever seen God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Bible teaches that he is the image of the invisible God. But hey, none of us have seen Jesus either, right? None of us has seen him with our physical eyes. Only a Christ-centered imagination can accomplish that. Like everything else, imagination begins with creation. You can take that down. Whew. Every religion has a creation story. The difference between our creation story and others is that every other creation narrative begins with a conflict of some kind, a struggle. In the Judeo-Christian story, one God imagines a world and then makes it a reality. As Mr. Dickens might put it, he had pictures in his mind of something not yet real. Then he made it real. Our God's creation was not merely an act of power. It was an act of the imagination. And his crowning achievement was people. God spoke everything into existence except human beings. He made people. The poet James Weldon Johnson describes God kneeling in the dust like a mammy bending over her baby, toiling to shape a lump of clay into his image. Up to that point, God declared everything he had created good. But when he looked at human beings, he said, that's very good. Ephesians 2.10 calls us God's workmanship. 
his masterpiece. The Greek word is poema. The word from which we get our word poem. With the same vision, care, and attention to detail that we celebrate in creativity of poets and artists, God created us in his own image. We are his poems. His masterpiece and his creativity lives in us. Five times in Genesis alone, we're told that God created people in his own image. That doesn't mean he looks like us. We have to be careful about creating God in our image. No anthropomorphisms here. God doesn't have a belly button. What it means is that intellectually, morally, emotionally, and creatively, we mirror him. Imago Dei. The human ability to create comes from God. And that includes anything we can perceive with our senses. As John and I drive home on 412 East, there's a spot where the landscape looms suddenly and endlessly ahead. It's always breathtaking, and we never tire of seeing it. But it's not just the panorama of space and color, land and uh, sky. It includes ribbons of highway that wind through that scene like streamers on a gift. Where did the engineers who envisioned and created those highways get their abilities? What about architects and designers and landscapers who imagine shape and form and color and texture and then turn them into reality? What about our own ability to appreciate it? Those are the questions that stumped C.S. Lewis. Surely the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century, Lewis wrote imaginative Christian literature like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Screwtape Letters. But Lewis wasn't always a Christian. He was an atheist, an academic, a thinker, and a literary critic who taught at Oxford and Cambridge. And he could not believe that really smart people like himself could believe in God. Then he met J.R.R. Tolkien. You know him too, don't you? Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, that guy, Tolkien was a Christian, and there were other thinkers and writers like him who were also devout Christians. And Lewis began to wrestle with the question, if there is no God, where do imagination and creativity come from? The obvious answer is that they are both gifts from God. But first, you have to believe there is a God and that he wants you to know him. 
Lewis came to understand that, as have other atheistic academics. In her memoir, Not God's Type, the atheist academic lays down her arms. Holly Ordwell shares how she came to God. Reading the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, and the work of Christian poets like Gerard Manley Hopkins, John Donne, and George Herbert. But it was mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis that sealed the deal. If you know that book, you understand why. Lewis argues brilliantly in mere Christianity, but he appeal, appeals as much to the imagination as he does to the intellect. I'm quoting from it. Imagine yourself as a living house, he writes. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But God is building a palace. He intends to come and live in himself. Unquote. That, my friends, is consummate creativity, both for author and reader and for the God who's rebuilding the house. It was Lewis's friend, Tolkien, who coined the term sub-creation, the idea that God created all the raw materials, shape, color, sound, texture, and so forth, and then gave those raw materials to us so that we could create too. And it's not just that God gave us the raw material. By creating us in his image, he shared with us something of his own power, both to imagine that which is not yet, and then to make it real. That's one way he shares his life with us. He lives his life in us. He dreams his dreams in us. And he lets us partner with him in making his image of a better world a reality. The Bible reveals a creating God who made us in his image. But it also reveals a God who created himself in our image. That is the miracle we call incarnation. God made himself flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God planning and preparing for that extraordinary event. It was a picture in his mind long before he created the world. And like the careful artist that he is, he spent a lot of time perfecting it.
for millennia through types and shadows and ceremonies and people and prophecies. He presented in the most imaginative way possible what the incarnation would look like. And then when the time was absolutely perfect, he became flesh and dwelt among us in the form of Jesus. Through Jesus, we become new creations. But Jesus didn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem. He existed from all eternity, and his incarnation began the way all humans begin. As cells dividing within a womb until they become a real baby. Can you imagine God himself as a cell? God confined to a uterus? Being pregnant during Christmas helped me to do that. I could really imagine Jesus in the womb. And I identified with Mary in ways I never had before. I could imagine her lumbering gait, her misshapen body, her inverted navel. When my baby punched and kicked me, my baby's sitting on the front row. When she punched me, I imagined Jesus doing that to Mary's poor, tired body. And I wondered if she got as grouchy as I did about it. But I also felt the excitement and anticipation she must have experienced when she knew that it was time for that baby to be born. Isn't that the way we all feel during Advent? Imagination helps us do that. The idea is always to put ourselves in the story. Because imagination transcends our personal experience. Why do we read? We do it because we want to go places and meet people that we would never otherwise encounter. And that's especially true when we read the Gospels. Because for us, they're going to make Jesus flesh, right? What does your Jesus look like? Does he smile? Does he laugh? When you look at Christian art, you sometimes think Jesus never enjoyed himself. He always looks angry or sad or much too pious to be human. Imagination helps us to correct those stereotypes, revealing Jesus in a fresh, real way and allowing us to share his humanity more authentically and transformatively. Because of this, And because I've heard that you are loyal and faithful to Jesus the Master, and that you show love to all God's holy people, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of King Jesus our Lord, 
the Father of glory would give you in your spirit the gift of being wise, of seeing things most people can't normally see because you are coming to know him and to have the eyes of your inmost self open to God's light. Then you will know exactly what is the hope that comes with God's call. You will know the wealth of his glory, of his inheritance in his holy people, and you will know the outstanding greatness of his power towards us who are loyal to him in faith, according to the working of his strength and power. This was the power at work in the king when God raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Above all rule and authority and power and lordship and above every name that is invoked, both in the present age and also in the age to come. Yes, God has put all things under his feet and has given him to the church as the head over all. The church is his body. It is the fullness of the one who fills all in all. A very human Jesus spent 33 years on earth, died, was buried, and rose again so that we could share his own resurrection power and continue his work of imagining and then creating a better world. Then he returned to heaven with a promise to come back and, and take us there. Before he left, though, he promised to send the Holy Spirit. As the song goes, the Father gave the Son. The Son gave the Spirit. The Spirit gives us life. So we can give the gift of love. And the gift goes on. God just keeps revealing himself. The word keeps on becoming flesh. The image keeps on becoming real. First in creation, then in the written word, then in the living word, then in the power of the Holy Spirit, and now, amazingly, in us. God keeps giving us whatever we need to know him. Jesus himself defined eternal life as knowing God. Not knowing about him, but knowing him. Personally, passionately, intimately, with the eyes of our inmost self, we have power to see things other people cannot see. Christ's already, uh, own resurrection power is already in us. All we have to do is tap into it and unleash it. Imagination allows us to see through God's eyes. And that perspective makes all the difference in the world. Few people explain spiritual mysteries better than Paul, and that's what he's doing right here. Just look at the times he repeats the word power. He wants us to understand that we possess the same power that brought Jesus back to life. But note the abstract words he uses. Maybe we should uh, 
Maybe he needs some emojis. Uh, I'm sorry you couldn't look at the text and see those words. But, you know, just one of these or one of these would have done it for Paul. Maybe we need a better imagination. How can we engage this text with our imagination? First, we must remember it is a letter. Letters are different from the other forms of literature in the Bible. They must be read at one sitting. The whole letter, not just bits and pieces of it. When you get a letter, do you read a line or two and then just put it down? Of course not. That's how we should read the letters in the Bible as well. Second, this passage is a prayer. Remember, uh, imagine Paul praying. Hear his voice. See his affect and facial expressions. Observe his position. Is he kneeling? Sitting? Standing? Look at his surroundings. What is he wearing? Is he alone? Get the picture in your mind. And then look at the elements of Paul's prayer. What specifically is he praying for the Ephesians? Again, note the repetition. What ideas are repeated and why? Imagine the Ephesians reading this letter and this prayer. How do they receive it? How are they responding? How can you tell? Well, you join them. You sit down with them. And you listen to the prayer with them. What does it say to you? How do you respond? And another prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This passage, too, is a prayer. Again, Paul stresses spiritual power and one's inner being, but here he adds a really cogent idea. We're better together. All God's holy people. We can do this alone, but there's more power in community. What is your vision for the months ahead, for yourself, 
for your family, for your grace group, for all of us here at 2828. Set a timeline. Where would you like to be in your faith journey alone and in partnership with others, say, by Christmas? Imagine it. Imagining Paul's prayer here in Ephesians might help you to decide. As you consider how wide and long and high and deep God's love is for you, what comes to mind? Some visualize the ocean, the sky, outer space. I'll bet our missionaries who saw the Grand Canyon for the first time last month imagine something like that. Regardless where you stand or how long you stay there, you cannot see the whole of it. It's easy to feel swallowed up by the immensity of the canyon. And that's exactly how Paul wants you to experience the immensity of God's love. You probably can't get your mind around being swallowed up by God's love, but you can grasp it with your imagination. When you start to feel defeated or overwhelmed, close your eyes and imagine yourself lost, Fanny Crosby's word, lost, in a love so vast. It's bigger than the Grand Canyon. It's even more immense. Be still and quiet. Close your eyes. Pay attention to your breathing. Just let God love you in the moment. Then feel the peace that I guarantee will wash over you. Can we practice doing that right now as we prepare our hearts for giving and for communion? Humor me. Would you close your eyes? Imagine Jesus' embryonic hands in Mary's womb. Now see his hands as a newborn, a toddler, an adolescent, an adult. Imagine them touching, healing, embracing people. Now see him at the Passover meal with his disciples. Observe his hands as they lift the bread and then the chalice. Hear him say, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Watch his ears arrested. See his hands bound with ropes and pierced with nails as he suffers on the cross for you. Finally, see his hands offering the bread and the wine and the eternal gift that flows from his broken body and shed blood to you.
right here, right now, then make that reality by going out, leaving here, and being Jesus' hands in a broken world. Thank you for being here.